Well, here in Dallas, Texas, we have survived a very cold week and looks like we're going to get off to a start of another cold week uh, in this coming week. So if you are in a part of the country where you're listening to this today and you're really warm, just be grateful <laughs> and pray for us. We're not used to this cold stuff. Where we're in a series that we're calling The Smartest Man in the Room, where we're actually looking at the wisdom literature that Solomon wrote in the Old Testament. Today, we're going to be looking at the Song of Songs. As we get started, let's just take a moment and pray together. God, you are so good. Your mercy is so unending. And I thank you for what you have done in my heart and how you've challenged me this week and you've taught me new things. And I just ask now, as we gather around your word, that you will just have complete freedom in our hearts, in our minds, to do the things that need to be done. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Give us hope. And God, help us to see you more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in this new series on the wisdom literature of the Scripture, in particular the writings of Solomon. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever thought of it like this before, but the trilogy of Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes actually represent the three parts of human personality, the mind, the heart, and the will. What makes people people is that we're thinking, feeling, acting, being. So when you look at the three wisdom books of Solomon, this is how they break down. First, there's the will. It's, that's the book of Proverbs. It's all about making the right choices in life. Then comes the heart. That's the Song of Songs. It's all about the things that cause our emotions to soar. And then finally, there's the mind, and that's Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a penetrating inquiry of the mind. It's a search for answers to life's most perplexing questions. So today, we're going to be focusing on Song of Songs. In order to understand this book, you first need to see it kind of as the whole. In northern Israel, Solomon is sharecropping one of his farms to a family. On this particular occasion, he goes to the country, puts on the garments of a shepherd, and visits the property incognito. There he meets a young country girl who's keeping her vineyard. He falls in love with her and she with him. She's not aware that he's the king. He proposes to her, then returns to Jerusalem. Later, he returns in all of his royal regalia. He surprises the girl, takes her back to Jerusalem for the royal wedding feast. After marriage, of course, they have their honeymoon. Later, they go through some struggles, but eventually they're able to work through their problems. So this is a book that's about love and intimacy and connection and communication and struggles and overcoming them in marriage. Some of you may have found it difficult or may find it difficult to accept the fact that Solomon could write this book, especially in light of the fact that he had as many wives as he had. I mean, how could Solomon even write a song about the virtue of fidelity in marriage? Well, the answer seems to be found in the next book in Ecclesiastes. Solomon writes Ecclesiastes in the latter years of his life. In that book, he confesses the emptiness of the life that he's lived. Ecclesiastes represents life with messed up values and shattered relationships. An empty life that happens when you forget what life is really about. But Song of Songs represents a far happier time in his life, when he actually enjoyed the good things of marriage because he, he had his priorities right. In fact, there's some who believe that this was Solomon's first love. Perhaps she died after a brief marriage. We don't know. She saw herself as the perfect match for him, and he was the perfect match for her. It could even be that losing her is what drove Solomon to the empty life he eventually pursued. The introductory verse of this song says this, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. If you've ever wondered why this book is called 
both Song of Solomon and Song of Songs. Let me explain that to you. In the original manuscripts of the Bible, none of the books of the Bible had titles. Titles were added later so that we could distinguish one book from another. But what you need to understand is the typical Jewish way of naming a book was to call it by the first words of the text. For example, there's an Old Testament book that we call Numbers, which is really not a good name for the book because the numbering of the people only occurs twice in that book. But the first line of the book says, In the Wilderness which is actually an excellent title for the book because it's all about the wilderness wanderings of the people of God. Well, Song of Solomon is a title that other people gave to this book years ago, and that's why it kind of stuck. It's why we still call it that. But the first line of the book is actually Song of Songs, which is probably a more accurate title. So what exactly does that mean, Song of Songs? Well, think of it in light of other phrases you know, like, Holy of Holies, or Lord of Lords, or King of Kings, or God of Gods. It's another way of saying that this is the ultimate expression of the word it describes. In other words, the Holy of Holies is the most holy of all holy places, and the King of Kings is the greatest King of all kings, the Lord of Lords is the greatest Lord of all the Lords, and God of Gods is the God over all other gods. So Solomon is saying that this song is not just the greatest song he ever wrote, it's the greatest song of all time. So let's begin like we did last week in the book of Proverbs by looking at things that make the Song of Songs unique. The first thing I'd point out is simply the genre of the literature is poetry. Edward Hurst wrote this about poems. He said, poems communicate before they're understood. Let the poem work in you. Listen to the words and pay attention to the feelings they evoke. Because Song of Songs is poetry, the language of the book is highly figurative. And what makes it all the more challenging is the metaphors and descriptions are tied to an ancient agrarian pre-modern society in which we have very little in common. To give you an example of the language in this book, here's the man describing the woman that he loves. He writes this, How beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which have come up from the washing, all of which bearing twins, and not one among them has lost her young. Your lips are like scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields, all around the shields of the mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, and there's no blemish in you. While you and I are certain that the language Solomon uses here must be highly complimentary, the truth is we don't get a lot of what he's saying. By the way, based on this description, we now think we have a pretty accurate idea of what this woman would have looked like. So using the best technology at our disposal and paying close attention to Solomon's description, a team of sketch artists have come up with this drawing on your screens right now. <laughs> See what I mean? It's hard to understand what all these metaphors mean, and even the ones we do understand, they seem a little odd. Like in this description, she's smiling because he's just told her how beautiful she is. And as she smiles, he notices that her teeth are like newly shorn ewes that have come up from the river, and not one of them is alone. In other words, she has a full set of teeth. 
<laughs> if today you were to compliment a woman on having a full set of teeth, it'd be like saying you're glad that she's not some redneck toothless hillbilly. So it doesn't come off quite as meaningful today. But in the days before dentistry, this was an extremely rare and beautiful thing, something that made her exceptional, something that was not true of most people and definitely worth complimenting. So it's poetic, but there's something else about this book. This book is erotic. No one can discuss the Song of Songs without talking about the erotic tone of the book. So the Song of Songs has presented some problems to people of faith. Like for one, there's no mention of God or faith anywhere in this book. The only other book that's like that in the Bible is the book of Esther. Second and more problematic is the steamy, sensual, erotic tone of the book. Reading Song of Songs is like eavesdropping on the bedroom whispers of a couple as they flirt and tease with each other. The Song of Solomon is about human sexuality, and that's unavoidable. But this book isn't sordid, nor is it pornographic. It hints and paints pictures here and there, but they're not graphic images. In fact, nowhere in the book does it use the typical words for intercourse that the Bible would normally use, words like to lie with or to know or to uncover nakedness. The act of sex is referred to by several euphemisms, like coming into a garden or climbing a palm tree. In other words, the language is tasteful and poetic and beautiful. When the Song of Songs talks about sex, it does so in such an allegorical way that even the best commentators can't agree about which part of the anatomy it's referring to. That's because poetry is meant to evoke certain feelings, not to be pornographic. If you're worried about the erotic tone of the book, just remember, the Song of Songs is not vulgar. Something else that makes this book very unique, the story is told from a female perspective. The female in this story is referred to as the Shulamite. In case you didn't know, Shulamite is the feminine form of the name Solomon, and both her name and his means peace. In modern language, we would simply translate it Mrs. Solomon because she's his bride. So here's the thing to keep in mind. The book consists entirely of a dialogue between the man and the woman with occasional side remarks from a chorus of people who happen to be surrounding them. But from the beginning to the end of this book, the reader encounters the woman's perspective more than that of the man. Her voice is dominant. So much so that even when the man does speak, most often it's the woman who's reporting what he's saying. Listen to this interesting fact. Her voice is heard in close to 75% of the poems. The fact is the majority of the song is from the woman's point of view, which is another reason why Song of Solomon is a bad name for this book. If you want to be more accurate, a better name would be the Song of the Shulamite. Something else you should know, she is assertive and confident. She's the strong one, the man is the sensitive one. So don't let gender stereotyping convince you that women can't be strong or that men can't be sensitive. That's just the ignorance of people who elevate cultural ideas over biblical ideas. In addition, Song of Songs is the only place in Scripture where a woman describes her sexuality for herself. But I think one of the most interesting facts about the Song of Songs is that it appears to be a reversal of the punishment of Eve in Genesis 3. Remember what God said to Eve in Genesis 3? This is what he said. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That's Genesis 3.16. Now, in the Song of Songs, the woman declares, I am my beloved, and his desire is for me. Now, this Hebrew word we translate desire only occurs three times in the Old Testament. The first time it was used in Genesis 3.16, in the Garden of Eden, where the relationship between man and woman was first damaged. Now it's repeated here, same word, except now the man desires the woman. 
this connection to the Garden of Eden seems to be quite intentional because even the setting for the Song of Songs is lovers in a garden. What this book seems to be doing is taking us back to the place where all of our problems began, back to the garden where this split between man and woman got its start. But now it's showing us that mutuality in marriage helps to reverse the curse of the garden. By the way, I'll never understand people who look at the curse and the consequence of sin and use that as the biblical pattern for marriage rather than the redeemed examples we see throughout Scripture. Marriage is a place of mutuality like the Scriptures teach, not a place for powering up or domination. So when it comes to the message of the Song of Songs, I get two big takeaways, and the first one is this, learning what it means to really love. You see, the Jewish people didn't have just one word for love. They had several, words that were more nuanced to convey various aspects of love. So before we can know and experience love in its fullness, we first need to understand what love is. And the Song of Songs helps us to do just that. Here's the first word for love that we're given in this book, and it's raya. It means intimacy. We find it in this verse. You're beautiful from head to toe, my dear love. Beautiful beyond compare. Absolutely flawless. Raya means friend, companion, or soulmate. What the Song of Songs tells us about this aspect of love is that the person you spend the rest of your life with should be your best friend. Another verse from this Song of Songs says this, How is your beloved better than others? This is the answer. This is my lover. This is my friend. O daughters of Jerusalem, I am my lover's and my lover is mine. The phrase that stands out most to me is that simple statement, this is my lover, this is my friend. In other words, this person is more than just the person I live with and love. This person is a true friend to me. Would you describe your marriage first and foremost as a friendship? I think this is one of the most neglected dimensions to love today, because what is a friend? Friends are people with whom you dare to be yourself. Your soul can be naked with them. When you're with them, you don't have to constantly be on your guard. You can say what you think as long as it's genuinely who you are. Friends understand those contradictions in your nature that lead other people to judge you. And what the Song of Songs is underscoring is that that's the kind of love that should be most evident in your marriage. This is something you were meant to experience with your spouse. Because a friend knows you so well and loves you so much, they're actually in the best position to heal the brokenness of your life. Because when someone knows us deeply but still loves us completely, there's something about that experience that's very healing in a world where many only love us for what we can do for them. But for too many of us, our spouses are not our healers. Sometimes they're the very ones who perpetuate the pain of our past. Instead of repairing it, they repeat it. Marriage is supposed to be a friendship where we become the reinforcers of our partner's significance, not a contradictor of it. Best friends bring out the best in each other. A second dimension to love, according to the Hebrew people, is ahava, and this is commitment. Ahava means deep affection. It is a a wish to be with the other person that's so great that it makes your heart ache. Listen to this passage describe Ahava. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Ahava is love that's expressed through the human will. So it's more profound than just feeling romantic feelings towards someone. Ahava is what leads us to the decision to join our life with another person. 
Think of ahava as committed love. It's, it's not a relationship of convenience. It's not a live-in relationship where one partner refuses to make a commitment to the other. Ahava is the foundation. It's the glue that makes relationship work. It openly declares its commitment to the other person. And commitment is what it takes to give us security and release us from the fears of abandonment. The Hebrews understood that love is an act of the will. Ahava, it's committed love. Bottom line is this, you can't have one foot in and one foot out of a relationship and think that relationship is going to succeed because half a commitment is no commitment at all. Real love is committed love. And then there's this third dimension to real love, according to the Hebrews, and it's dod, which means passion. Dod literally means to rock or to fondle. So think of dod as the passionate part of a love relationship. Here's a verse that uses the word dod. Let him kiss let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love, your dode, is more delightful than wine. So dode love has associations with the, the physical and even the sexual aspects of love, but it's bigger than that. Passion is bigger than sex. Passion is in part what drives us. Passion is the desire we have for our mate. I mean, let's face it, everyone wants to be wanted, and that's what dode love is. I want you, so I pursue you. So we have our Raya flame, we have the Ahava flame, we have our Dode flame. One flame burning all by itself will never be as warm or as bright as all three flames burning together. We were created for all the flames to burn as one. So how many relationships have you seen where all flames burn as one? Today, it's far more common to see people define love one-dimensionally. Lots of people will settle for passion without commitment. But if all you do is rely on one flame, it's going to leave you longing for more, and it's going to tend to burn out on its own. Only all three loves can warm our soul and satisfy our life. The good news is this. If you're in a relationship and one of these three ingredients is missing or is going out, you can fan the flickering flame and reignite it simply by focusing on it. The key is that you have to be honest with yourself about what you have or don't have in your relationship. And if you're not presently in a relationship, you can know what to look for in love that goes the distance because these are the three essentials. Now, second thing the Song of Songs underscores is all about making better relationships. Throughout the Song of Songs, I find three enemies of intimacy, three forces that work in your life and mine to keep us from experiencing all that God meant for us to have in our most intimate relationships. So let's begin by looking at the enemy of broken communication. You see, this book teaches us about the kind of skills that keep love strong, and it all begins with learning how to speak the language of love. The first quality to the language of love is simply this. It's language that complements. Solomon called his wife darling nine times in this book. It's actually the, the Hebrew word raya. It means an intimate companion. What he next says to his wife is just so romantic. He says, you remind me of my prize mare. Now, guys, before you compare your wife to a Clydesdale, let me explain what's really going on here. Back in Solomon's day, this was an amazing compliment because you got to understand what Solomon is actually saying. He says his wife is like a mare harnessed to one of Pharaoh's chariots. Mares, which are female horses, were never used to pull chariots. You'd only use stallions for the royal vehicles. So what do you think would happen if you harnessed up a mare amongst all those stallions? It would be the ultimate distraction. 
What Solomon is saying is a high compliment to her attractiveness, what, that when she walks into the room, she's got the attention of every guy in the place, that, that she's a stunner, that all eyes are on her. Let me tell you why compliments matter so much. Insecurities inhibit expression. If your spouse feels insecure or is made to feel insecure in regards to something about her appearance, her competence, or her intelligence, then he or she is going to withhold that part of themselves in the relationship with you because it's not safe for them to be fully who they are. When we feel insecure, it inhibits our ability to express ourselves fully. Does that make sense? But here's the thing. The great thing about marriage is you can praise away your lover's insecurities. By freely and openly, openly communicating love and acceptance, your husband or your wife feels free to give themselves completely to you. And you can actually see this take place in the Song of Songs. In particular, you can see how her view of herself changes between chapter 1 and chapter 2 of this book. She says something about herself in chapter one, verse, or chapter 2, verse 1. She says, I am the Rose of Sharon and the Lily of the Valley. Notice, it's the woman who's saying this about herself, not the man saying it about her. But this is a dramatic shift from chapter 1. In chapter 1, she's very unsure of herself. She's unsure about her looks, in part because she's a working girl. She spends her days in the field doing manual labor. She tells Solomon, my skin is darkened by the sun. She says this to denigrate herself. In other words, she's no pale-skinned, pampered palace princess. So she's not sure whether he's going to like her the way she is. Then after a chapter of him praising her, all of a sudden in chapter 2, we see self-confidence. She now sees herself as the lily of the valley. Her self-esteem has, has risen dramatically, but, but how? Simply put, love did it. It's what happens when we communicate genuinely from the heart what we truly see in the people that we love. She's begun to see herself as one who is loved, and that's made all the difference. You probably recognize the name Charles Williams, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien. They were known as the Inklings. For two decades, they met together discussing how to incorporate their Christian values into fictional writings. It was Charles Williams who once said, when we love someone, we see their eternal identity. There's something to that. When you love someone, all their defects seem to go to the wayside. I mean, you know they're there. Love isn't denial. You know their limitations. You know their faults. But when you truly love someone, you forgive them their faults because you see something deeper. You see their eternal identity. You know, something I've discovered about a lot of couples. After a while, they seem to lose the ability to tell their mates what they really like about them and why they love them. And not telling them. Being silent about what we like easily translates into a feeling of not being liked and not feeling loved. If we don't tell them that, how will they know? If, if your mate doesn't get a regular diet of affectionate communication from you, will they remain confident in your love for them? Let me say this from the heart. If you want a great love life, then no one needs to, needs for, no one needs to communicate with your spouse more than you do about what makes them so special. I never want my wife to wonder whether or not I think she's amazing, beautiful, my one and only true love. I never want her to doubt whether I'm truly, madly, deeply in love with her. I never want her to question whether or not I think she's my best time and my best friend. She needs to hear it from me. She needs to hear it often. She needs to know it's not just words, but it's backed up by behaviors that reinforce those words. The second thing he says is to use language that compromises. Notice this verse. 
catch us, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. My lover is mine and I am his. In relationships, we're all aware of the big issues that destroy relationships. The big things never start out as big things. They start out as little things we ignored until they became the saboteurs of our love life. So in this ancient book of wisdom literature, it's telling couples, let's get rid of those little pests before they make a bigger mess than we're able to clean up. Here's the thing you have to remember about relationships. Big relationship problems are only big because when they were small, we did nothing about them. Small things, little foxes, can derail the best of relationships if we let them. The truth is, some relationships end with a big bang, some big lie, an affair, the exposure of an addiction, a really huge disagreement. But usually the breakdown occurs in what I call death by a thousand paper cuts. Paper cuts are painful. I hate them, don't you? But they're not serious and, and, and really rarely need a bandage. But when you're in a relationship and the stuff that's passing between you amounts to a thousand tiny paper cuts, pretty soon you get to the point where you say, maybe it's better for me to quit handling this paper. So do you have any little foxes that need to be run out of their marriage garden before they destroy everything inside? Are you ignoring small things that just continue to eat away at you? You know, maybe the surest sign that this is happening is you start to store up these things in your heart every time they happen. When you begin to start to make mental lists of the things that bother you, this is a kind of sandbagging in relationship, and it's a sure sign of trouble. Here's another enemy of intimacy we notice in Song of Solomon. It's this, the enemy of little exits. The most frequently used exit door in marriage is distance. It's how we separate ourselves from each other when the challenge of intimacy gets to be too great. We can use anything or anyone to put distance between us and we don't have to deal with each other when we're doing that, and we don't deal with the problem. They're exit doors. Harville Hendricks wrote a book called Getting the Love You Want. He actually created a list of the kind of little exits we often take in relationship. Here's some examples he gave. Staying late at work. Disappearing into the garage. Overeating. Volunteering for every committee at church or school. Falling asleep on the couch. Staying on the phone. Fantasizing while making love. Refusing to make love. Going shopping, refusing to talk, spending hours on the computer, reading magazines, watching movies. Now, obviously, not every time someone engages in those activities are they trying to run from the relationship. But whenever you're engaging in this type of behavior habitually, you have to be honest about why you can justify removing your presence from a relationship that you claim to value. The Song of Songs addresses these concerns as well. Notice this verse. Come, my love. Let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrance, and at the door, at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my lover. You know, at this point in the Song of Songs, Solomon and his bride are no longer newlyweds. And what Solomon is calling our attention to is the environment that leads to little exits. Let me say there's nothing wrong with routine. You know, when I'm what I'm concerned with is, is empty routine. In verse 11, the woman says, let's go out to the countryside. Now think about this. Even life in a palace surrounded by wealth and comfort can become tiresome. Even having a measure of the good life is not enough because stuff doesn't make you happy. Our relationships are what drive the happiness quotient of our life. All of us need a break from the routine. 
You know, I've read at least a couple hundred books just dealing with relationships. Many of them have suggested that a, a major factor in many affairs is boredom. So let me ask you, are, are you fun to live with? Or is your life filled with boring routine? To avoid boring routine calls for intentional planning on our part. Did you notice the reference to mandrake cakes? In the ancient world, mandrake, mandrake cakes were known as an aphrodisiac. Middle Eastern people actually call them the servant of love. This is her way of saying she has something special in mind for him. Solomon's bride also mentioned that she's stored them up, which means that she's been thinking about this and she's been planning their getaway for some time. She saved these delicacies for this occasion, which tells me that we have to be proactive, not reactive when it comes to the intimacy intruders. And then finally, Solomon, he turns his attention to the last intimacy killer, and it's this, the enemy of indifference. This last enemy is a reminder that even the most loving couples can experience marriage problems, and it happens largely because of the carelessness and indifference. Let's look at what happened. I slept, but my heart was awakened. Listen, my lover is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? So these two aren't newlyweds any longer. Life is settled into a necessary but predictable routine. By the way, the language of this story leads us to believe that what's taking place isn't an isolated incident, but a recurring one. He's been very busy, and she's been very lonely. So he comes home late after a hard day at the palace, and he foregoes the typical romantic behavior for which he's become famous. And he says, wake up, baby, I'm home. So you know what he's got on his mind. But what's abundantly clear is this is no longer the same Romeo we read about earlier in the Song of Songs, and tonight she's got a headache. So his timing and technique seem to have lost a little luster, and she's tired of feeling used. Basically, we're witnessing a little spat, and it's manifesting in the bedroom. Let me remind you of something. If your life outside the bedroom, bedroom is not as it should be, then what happens in the bedroom is often a symptom, not a cause of the marriage problems. Then she, when she turns him down, he leaves, and he goes driving around town in his chariot, and he ends up at the royal harem. By the way, this is not a nightclub. He describes it like this. Sixty queens there may be, and eighty concubines, and virgins beyond number. It was customary in those days for kings to have hundreds of women at their disposal. Solomon had inherited his father's harem, and in that moment he was tempted to find other ways to get his needs met, but he didn't do it. But what about her? She can't find him, so she wants to leave, which makes him cry out, Come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back. Do you see what almost happened? Because they weren't taking care of their life outside the bedroom, there was no life inside the bedroom. And as a result, he almost has an affair and she almost leaves him. What almost happened would have been very bad, but it didn't happen. And I want us to know why it didn't happen. Look at this. My lover thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I opened for my lover, but my lover had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. Now, the biggest reason nothing happened was because they chose to act based on their responsibility rather than react based on their feelings of entitlement. This is a really big deal, and it's vitally important that you understand this. Dr. Larry Crabb summed it up best when he said, the greatest obstacle in building truly great relationships is justified self-centeredness. What Larry Crabb is saying and what I'm telling you 
is there's a voice that whispers convincingly to our spirit that there's nothing in this universe that's more important than our own needs. And if the meeting of my needs doesn't take first place, then whatever I do in light of that is reasonable, understandable, and excusable. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that your needs don't matter. They do. It's not that they don't have a place. They do. They have a place, but that place is not always first place. A lot of times when marriages are in the danger zone, one spouse will say, you know, if he or she would just do this or that, then things would get better. And as long as that attitude exists, there's no hope for improvement. What has to happen is this. You have to decide, I will do my part to make things better regardless of what my spouse does. And it takes real character and commitment to do that for more than just a week. So let me ask you, will you take that powerful spotlight of yours that so completely exposes the problems in your mate and turn it on yourself? Are you willing to give up your character flaws regardless of whether or not your mate responds in kind? You see, the goal in this is not to be right or to win. It's to solve the problem and to make the marriage whole again. So here's what I've discovered in life. You can fight the problem or you can fight each other. And it's better to fight your problems. But there's one more thing I got to tell you about this song. And that is there's more to this story than meets the eye. The Jewish people have viewed this love story as an illustration of God's love for his people. Christians have viewed the book in several ways. One, the literal meaning. that This is just a love story between Solomon and his beloved bride. The historical meaning that this is a relationship between God and Israel. A spiritual meaning that this is a relationship between Christ and the church. And this is a practical meaning that this is just a picture of faithful and deepening love. What you need to know is for the first 1,800 years of church history, the spiritual interpretation of this song was the only way this book was understood. Even the name itself, like I explained earlier in the message, the Song of Songs is like saying, this is the greatest song ever sung. And maybe it's the greatest because it's more than just about marriage between a husband and a wife. This imagery of husband and wife becoming one is supposed to remind us of the relationship God has with his people. Even Paul does this in Ephesians 5 when he spends some time talking about marriage, but then he adds this comment. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Throughout scripture, we're constantly reminded of what our relationship looks like to God. Jesus calls himself the bridegroom in Mark chapter 2. John the Baptist calls Jesus the bridegroom in John chapter 3. Revelation ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the church is the bride of Christ in Ephesians chapter 5. G. Campbell Morgan offered us this explanation. He said the song should be treated first as a simple and yet sublime song of human affection. When it is thus understood, Reverently, the thoughts may be lifted into higher values of setting forth the joys of communion between the spirit of man and the spirit of God, and ultimately between the church and Christ. Therefore, I can sing the song of Solomon as setting forth the relationship between Christ and his bride. So the question, is this about human love or divine love? And the answer is, it's both. By celebrating what is ideal love between a man and a woman, it best mirrors the relationship we have with God. The great teacher and mystic, Rabbi Akiba, he said the whole world is not worth the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all the scriptures are holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. I think it's important to remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. 
In other words, Jesus taught us that all of Scripture is ultimately about him. So how do we see Christ in the pages of this book? One of the observations made about this book that I think is very valid. So often we hear the imagery of God being like the groom and the church being like his bride, and that's a beautiful analogy, isn't it? But in this book, since it's written from a woman's point of view and in a woman's voice, and given the fact of who Solomon was and how he, what he's, he's the one in the, in the passage that's doing the abandoning, maybe we're supposed to see God's love as being more like the Shulamite than Solomon. I mean, for sure, this is not the only place in Scripture where God's love is demonstrated in feminine terms. We see that in other places, too, because God is not male or female. He is spirit, and it takes both men and women to fully reflect the image of God. And in this book, at the very least, we can say the kind of love that God has for us, we can see it in the woman as much, if not more, than what we see it in the man. Here's what I know. All of us long to be loved. doesn't matter who you are, what you've been through, whether you're married, divorced, or single. It doesn't matter if you've been hurt or your relationships are the most fulfilling part of your life. All of us long to be loved. We want Raya love, the love of deep friendship a friend who knows everything about us and still wants to be our best friend, a friend who's there for us through thick and thin, a friend who heals up our abandonment wounds from all the other so-called friends who walk away from us or did us, did us wrong. And that friend is Jesus. He's the friend who sticks closer than a brother. No greater love has a man than this, Jesus said, than a man would lay down his life for his friends. We also need apava or committed love, a love that goes beyond fleeting feelings, a love that says, I'm in this for the long haul. I'm committed to working through any and all of our problems that we may have along the way because this relationship is worth it to me. And that's Jesus. He's faithful even when we're faithless. He promises that nothing and no one can snatch us out of his hands. He's committed to us through thick and through thin. But we also need dode love, passion, strong desire. We all want to be wanted. Not just tolerated or accepted because God made a promise and now he's under obligation to keep it no matter how he personally feels about it. We want the pursuit. We want to be worth pursuing. And that's Jesus who leaves the 99 in search of the one. He wants his lost sheep found. And the Jesus we read about in scriptures is reckless in his abandon to seek us and find us wherever we may be. We all want to be loved. And the Song of Songs that celebrates the love of a man and a woman in marriage is also a mirror to show us how God loves us. You know, it's easy for singles to say, oh, this is a marriage about marriage. I don't need to listen to this. I'll tune back in next week. And that's a huge mistake because there's more to the story than meets the eye. And if you could see the kind of love this man has for this woman and this woman has for this man, you would understand that that's the kind of love we all crave, even if you never get married. But more importantly, it's the kind of love you can have because this is the way God loves each and every one of us. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for the message of this amazing book. It was so good to sit with you this week and, and to learn at your feet, Lord, and to, to read this anew with fresh eyes and to be challenged to see the woman's perspective throughout the Song of Songs, to see what love really means, to see the challenges of intimacy, but ultimately, God, to know and to understand that when we see love in, in an idyllic form like this, that God, this is a picture, this is a mirror, this is an image of what your love is like for each and every one of us. So much so that through the church for the first 1,800 years, 
cherished this book, memorized this book, quoted this book, because in every line and every stanza, they saw themselves as the one who was loved by God and pursued by God. Help us, God, to recapture that. Help us to understand that every book, every line in Scripture is about Christ. They speak of you. And I pray, God, that as we understand that and connect with that, that we would not have a, just a better understanding, but a greater experience of your love in our life, a love that never gives up, a love that's committed to us, a love that's a true friendship, a love that is passionate in its pursuit of us, regardless of the circumstances of our life. God, I thank you that you love me in that way. And I thank you, God, that you love all of us in that way. And for anybody who experience that falls short of that, God, help them to lean into this book and to say, God, help me to see myself as the one who was pursued. Help me to see myself in, in the Shulamite in chapter one, who's so insecure, who denigrates herself, but is loved into her beauty. That God, her, her insecurity, it falls by the wayside as she finds that she is now uninhibited because her lover loves her just the way she is. Thank you, God, for that kind of love, the love that sets us free. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So glad you would join us today. Please like, share this message. Join us again next week as we wrap up this series, looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. There's pure gold in that book. I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of it too. God bless you. I hope it's a fantastic week.